cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbon! And cut. Cut! Cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut! Let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the gate. Cut it! Cut! I did Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. If you're watching us on YouTube, which you should, we're at Cut Movie Pod. You can probably tell the movie that we're about to do. We're, our setting is a little bit different than we normally do. We know that spooky season is technically over, but is it really ever over? Spooky season's never over. And so we're going to do one more spooky movie. But before we get to our newest episode, which is episode six, we want to plug our last episode where we talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and if it's the most influential horror slash slasher film of all time. This week, we're doing a film that for many years traumatized me to the core. Uh, We are doing The Blair Witch Project. Angie, why are we doing The Blair Witch Project? We are doing The Blair Witch Project... Well, mostly because you said it traumatized you. (laughs) That was my first introduction into movies that can be traumatizing. Like other than like, I know we spoke about The Exorcist in the previous episode, but this one was like an our generation thing, even though we're like eight years apart, but still like we were alive when it happened. The difference between our responses to that movie is really interesting. So that's why we're doing it. First things first, a little bit on the movie, just technical specs like we normally do. The Blair Witch Project was released in July 30th of 1999. It has a runtime of one hour and 21 minutes, and it was directed and written by Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez. It stars Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, Michael C. Williams, who you'll find out those are the same names they use in the movie. It started the whole viral popularity thing found footage i think yeah found footage i want to say it started it but it revived it because there had been one or two films before but this one definitely kind of kicked it back up for us before we get into our first impression of the film or i guess manny's first impression is the one i'm most interested in we wanted to talk about the question we always ask at the beginning of these podcasts which is the question that we hope to answer The question for this film is, does the Blair Witch Project have the greatest viral marketing campaign ever? So that's what we're going to go through. That's what we hope to answer. And since we were talking about the reason we chose this movie being how it mostly traumatized you, what is your first memory of the movie? How much time do we have for this podcast? (laughs) Because I could be here all night with that story. But to put it into some context, in 1999, I was a senior in high school. I was about to be a senior. and so. Remembering those times, I was in summer school because the movie came out, I think it was wide release around July 30th. And I was trying to remember why I was at summer school in the first place. And I think it was my freshman year because I really struggled grade wise. And so I was retaking my freshman English honors class. I didn't really know anyone in the classroom. And so it was really hard to just strike up conversation. But I remember during a break, there was a girl who started, and I overheard this whole conversation. I wasn't like in her group of friends. She started talking about how her dad owned a theater and I still don't know which theater that is, but that they had seen this film that was a true story and the right away, like my ears perked up and it was based off a witch and it was like in the woods and 
She didn't mention the title of the movie, so it wasn't like I could look it up. But also this was a time when we never had the internet up until like years later. And so we always struggled with like dial up. And if you guys remember like Net Zero and Juno and you had a shitty banner at the top of the window <laughs> with advertisements, that was how we had internet. We didn't have AOL. And so it wasn't easily, information wasn't easily going to come by. I couldn't right. go back home and just search, which true story. I was fascinated, but terrified at the same time, because I was like, how can this be true? And, you know, I was really naive. It wasn't until I saw a commercial, because I don't think I ever saw a trailer in the movie theater for it. The image is the black and white image where she's running away from the camera. That, and it says Blair Witch Project, and that terrified me. Just like those, like, 30 seconds of that ad just, and... I think eventually I saw the the famous shot of her like looking to the camera. But all of that, for whatever reason, like just scared the shit out of me. And this was back when, you know, I was anti-scary movies and I hadn't seen many documentaries at that point. So I just completely bought into it like a lot of people. And it wasn't until the movie eventually came out and I think the the cast came out of The Tonight Show where I realized, oh, this is not real did you see it in the theater no i didn't see it till years later like on cable it was scary yeah because <laughs> i was like it, it just brought back all because like i would have nightmares just seeing 30 seconds of the commercial right took my imagination to these really dark places and i would have nightmares that the witch was chasing me like i vividly remember this dream where she was like hovering over the ground and just like levitating but like going 100 miles per hour and i would look behind and she was just like you should make a short of that probably yeah it was like traumatic for sure for, for me um but reading about it like i wasn't the only one that sort of went through it and thought that it was real and and so that was sort of my experience with you know just discovering the film in the first place what what's your first memory of it my first memory is probably because of you I don't remember really you mentioning that girl talking about it or anything really. I kind of just remember you talking about it and how it was supposed to be true. And I don't remember seeing a trailer. I don't remember seeing anything about it. I think I maybe remember seeing the poster like at the theater. But other than that, I don't really remember much about it. Do you remember I have this memory where <clears throat> we went to visit our aunt and we went to the Santa Anita mall. Uh, Do you guys remember Suncoast video? Yes. They had the poster and I couldn't even look at it. <laughs> I was that fucked up about the movie that I couldn't. And my mom was like trying to calm me down or whatever, but I couldn't even. Oh my look. God. And I couldn't. Yeah. It was just, it was yeah, that I, bad. I don't remember that. I like when I think about it now, if I'm like, well, if I was a senior in high school, I would have never fallen for it. But then I think back about the time that it was and how we didn't have the internet. And I think it was probably good that we didn't have the internet because it probably would have been worse if we did. Because mm -hmm. we would have been able to go on the website and look at all that stuff. And it would have been like 10 times worse. But just you mentioning the fact that you seeing those 30 seconds of trailer and your mind just kind of ran with it. That's really a part that we're going to talk about later about the movie and what it's really good at doing is not really showing us, but just kind of implanting these little nuggets of like terror. And speaking of the website, I was at a friend's house that did have AOL and had like a decent connection for the time. 
And it's funny because like, I never talked to my friends about the film, like the fear of it or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't know. A lot of my friends weren't really into like horror movies. So it wasn't like, Oh, like I went to go see it. And like, so I couldn't really talk to them about like my feelings about it. But I remember going to the friend's house and I like secretly like went away from them and went to the computer Oh my god! and typed in the Blair Witch website. And that drove my fear up the, because it's I like bet. there was photos of like the reels that they found and like the backstory and how they had been missing. Again, going back to the question that we asked really drove the whole viral marketing of it. And just again, playing with my imagination of like. This fucking happens. Like <laughs> you're not gonna like tell me otherwise, but this actually hundred percent happened. By the way, if if you guys haven't seen the Blair Witch Project, which I'm I'm sure a lot of younger people haven't at this point, is streaming on Hulu for free, so you can watch it on Hulu. Before we get further into our discussion of the Blair Witch Project, I don't know if you've seen what we're drinking. It's called the Bloody Witch, and so this drink has bourbon, ginger beer, lemon juice triple sec or Cointreau if you're fancy. And I think that's it. And it's actually it's pretty good. It's really refreshing. It's like a perfect summer drink. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of like a mint julep without the mint. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the pre-production of this film. So like Angie said, the, uh, the directors were Eduardo Sanchez and Dan Merrick. They actually both met at the University of Central Florida back in the uh, 1990s. And they became friends and they collaborated on a number of student films before deciding to collaborate on a horror movie. And one day they were just kind of hanging out and just talking about like their like favorite horror films. And so they sat down and just started watching um, a bunch of pseudo documentary style movies. There was a show called In Search Of and, is, and it reminded me of the show, uh, Believe It or Not, Fact or Fiction, which is basically retelling of a true story and you sort of have to like come up with like, did it happen? Did it not happen? And there was also a film called Chariots of Gods and Legend of Bobby, Bobby Creek. Um, and so all these films and TV shows sort of planted the seed in them to be like, maybe we can do something along those lines, but do it in a modern way, you know, for an audience at that time of, of you know, at the turn of the 20th century. And so they started developing this like mythos, this like legend where, you know, they took a little bit of like the Salem witch trials and uh, the crucible and sort of, you know, the idea of like the injustices done to these uh, witches, you know, and sort of tying it into this kind of mythos, but a retelling of it and, and to sort of modernize it in a way. And so in 1993, the genesis of the Witch sort of began. By 1998, Merrick and Sanchez began assembling an eight-minute documentary to attract funders, to attract money. The video was eventually sold to the television series Split Screen, and it aired on August 6, 1998. From that money, from that sale of, of that documentary, along with friends from friends, family, and videos, Merrick edited uh, <laughs> these videos for Planet Hollywood. That's how they were able to, to fund the film. And so the budget originally they say it was 30 grand, but I think by the time they did the whole movie and, you know, spend on, on, you know, viral marketing and all that, it, it sort of grew to $60,000. The numbers I saw when I found were $60,000, I think is what I saw. And you were mentioning earlier how they took inspiration from the Blair Witch Trials and the Crucible. And I don't think, I know now there's a lot of shows and movies about 
the betrayed witch that comes back and takes revenge on her betrayers. But I think that was maybe one of like the first ones. What about the craft? The craft. Yeah. But the craft isn't like they're like modern witches. It's not like they were possessed by one of the witches. Like I know Nancy's possessed by Memo, but like she's not possessed by you know, an ancestral witch that she had that had died and then possessed her so she could kill everyone. So I think it was one of the first ones of like a witch that was in, not necessarily in the Salem Witch Trials, but that was kind of killed in the same fashion at the same time and kind of comes back and takes her revenge. It took them eight days to shoot the film, six days in the woods, and then two days when they're at, at Burkittsville, and some of the cemetery shots and, and interviewing the, um, the townsfolk. Like I said, it was shot in Burkittsfield, Maryland and in Seneca Creek and Patapsco Valley State Parks. One of the big things with fans is that they think that the whole thing was shot in Burkittsville. The fans became so obsessed with the idea that it was shot there that they pretty much invaded the town. Oh no. They stole the welcome signs oh, that you no. see in the very beginning of the film. And really, the city hates the Blair Witch Project. They're I would not about it at all. I think a lot of the, the research that I did, the directors are like, don't go there. Don't visit it. We didn't really shoot it there. It's an illusion. Um, but again, it goes to the, back to the idea that a lot of people thought that this was absolutely real and, and, and that it took place there. Normally, I'd be like, hey, why don't you just make up a town? Which they kind of did because they say it was called Blair, but it's now Burkittsville. Right. But I guess that would kind of hinder the realness of it. You wouldn't be able to be like, well, maybe it was real if the town wasn't even real. Yeah. And the directors talk about because originally, like I said, from Florida, but their minds went, it's going to be taking place in the Northeast. It's got to be up there. Because again, back to the whole witch thing. Yeah. And and that's where it, it all sort of originated from. So it, like you said, it adds more credibility that it is in a real place, that it is in the Northeast. When we get to casting, the initial casting call brought in over 2,000 actors for uh, the Blair Witch Project. How Michael C. Williams, Joshua Leonard, and Heather Donahue were cast is there's a New York Magazine kind of newspaper called Backstage, which every actor on the planet, if you want to be something, you're always looking for parts. And there was an ad in the back of it called, that said, Improvised Feature Film. And uh, that caught Heather's eye. And at the time, the film was called The Black Hills Project. So it wasn't The Blair Witch Project at all. So during the audition, they posted a, what they call the scare note on the door. And this was for all the actors. And it read, you're about to read for the most demanding, unpleasant project of your career. If you're a cast, we're going to drag you into the woods for seven days of hell. 168 hours of real-time improvisational torment. We are not kidding. If you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time and hours. What would you say to that? I wouldn't go. Heather Donahue did an interview and she was all about it. She was like, this sounds really incredible to me. And she was also part of an improv company that she led in New York. So I think it was those two things that she thought, where am I going to be able to make a movie where I'm just improvising the whole time? Yeah, but... I don't know. But it was also a way to weed out actors. You yeah. Know? No, that makes sense. For and sure. I think that helped in the casting because to me, I think the three of them are, are really great in their parts. They are. And if you were to, you know, not put that note up and then throw them into the fire as they did, yeah. I don't think you would have gone the same performances and, and the movie would be completely different. So I kind of like that aggressiveness up front. 
because now <laughs> when you are in the middle of the woods and you're miserable, you can't be like, be like I you didn't knew- sign up for this. Right. You know, it's, it's exactly what, um, what you signed up for. Ed Sanchez, one of the directors said that basically the actors would come into the room and they would immediately start grilling them with certain questions. We told people during the audition, as soon as you come into the room, the audition starts. That worked for a lot of people and it didn't work for others. There were a lot of actors that came in and just didn't understand what they were trying to do. And then Heather talks about how her very first audition, uh, Daniel Merrick, the other co-director, told Heather, she walks in the room and says, well, you served seven years of a nine-year sentence. Why should we let you out on parole? And right away, she had to come up with a character and how she had a baby and yeah. wasn't feeding it. And so that was like the aggressiveness. It's impressive. Of, yeah. And yeah. I think that sort of, like I said, weeded out a lot of whatever actors. So Heather auditioned a few times and they really liked her assertiveness. And originally, I believe her actor was supposed to be another man. And they liked her performance so much that they kind of rewrote that part and, and cast her because of, of just her, what the director of that fake documentary would, would, uh, characteristics would be. Joshua Leonard said, I wind up getting Blair Witch because I had some acting experience and because I knew how to run a camera, which is what I was doing freelance a lot of the time at that point. There isn't a lot of information on how Mike was cast, but I'm assuming that he went through the ringer just like Joshua and Heather. There, the one thing that I did find is that on uh, Mike's acting bio, he had written that he had played in the, in the farm system for the New York Yankees, which he was like apparently a good athlete, but it was a complete lie. But yet when once the film kind of took off, the press kind of went with it. And so they were like interviewing him like, oh, how was it like being in the farm system for the Yankees? Like, uh, that's Great. not real. <laughs> After they were, the three of them were cast, a few days before they began filming the film, the cast took a few days to t- take a crash course in filmmaking because even though they were actors, they had never made a film. And that's the whole idea. You're making a documentary. Heather was shown creepy documentaries so that she could get an idea on what kind of a doc her character would make. All three of them learned how to operate a 60 millimeter camera, which if you've seen the film, all the black and white footage is actual 16 millimeter film. All the color footage is is from a video camera. And so there's very different ways on how to like shoot using both cameras. And so they had to, they had to take a lesson on how to do that. And Mike learned how to run the uh, dad recorder. What a dad recorder is, it's a digital audio tape recorder. And so Back in the day, which is 1999. That is back in the day now. Yeah. Um, you used to record audio on films on a, on a, it was like a digital cassette tape, which gave you better resolution than like a normal cassette tape, like a mix that you would make for friends. And so all of that had to encompass these characters. And so they had to, again, learn all this before they, you know, started shooting the film. Which I actually had to look up what a dat was because... I think I was even too young for that when that came out because yeah. they, they mention it over and over and over again. And there is a part of the movie where it's important that you know what a debt is and I will mention it when it happens. But yeah, I, I had to look it up because I had no idea what it was. And then when I figured it out, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's one thing that I love about the film because it is, it's supposed to be in 1994 where they, where they, the documentary took place. But it really shows you how much technology has evolved because now, like even the recorder that we use to record the podcast, it fits in your pocket and you could record a film with it. And in the film, he's 
essentially lugging around like a VCR sized, you know, uh, yeah. audio recorder. And, you know, even before that, you're going reel to reel and actual analog tape and all that. So I love those references of, of sort of the old technology and just how cumbersome it would be to, to shoot a documentary back and in the now, day. And now, like, if you were to do something like that for like a project or something, you could just go out there with your phone. Like that would be what you would shoot it on would be your phone. And exactly. so you're not lugging all of these microphones and the dat and the separate cameras and all that stuff. You would just kind of have a phone. Maybe like if you wanted to get fancy with it, you'd have like a 60 millimeter camera or something, but it would be totally different now. Right. Now we get to the actual film. We start with the Haxon films. Do you know what Haxon means or where the reference is from? I looked up that it's from an old movie. Yeah, it's from the 1922 silent documentary horror film, Haxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages. The opening text reads, In October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, the footage was found. Notice how shaky the font is. Every time you see, like, even with the closing credits, there's like a student film aspect to it because it doesn't look very professional. It looks very kind of like we just got to like type out whatever font and I'm kind of a font snob. So I noticed that stuff, but it's so basic, but it adds to the aesthetic of the film where you're like, and again, like when I watched it the first time, even though I knew that it wasn't real, there's just something eerie and not professional and like makes it, again, driving that, that it was possibly real. You and know? it, it reminds me a lot. I guess this might be completely on accident, but it reminds me of the beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is also supposed to be real. Exactly. Which kind of just hit me right now that those two things have that in common. So do you think that it would have more of an effect if there was a narration or do you think it's better just how it is? I think it's better the way that it is. I think so too. I think the narration because we had already had seen that with Texas Chainsaw and other, you know, horror films, it would, like I said, when you don't have the money, you don't have time to record dialogue. And again, back then, like it was, it isn't as easy as it is. Like now you could record a voiceover with your phone. Yeah. Back then you would need a recorder and, and it's, it wasn't as, as feasible as, as uh, it is now. So I think it adds to the whole reality of like, they didn't have a lot, they were just shooting something in the woods and then just fucking did it. We start inside Heather's home. And she says that she's leaving the comforts of her home for the weekend to explore the Blair Witch. The books on her coffee table are How to Stay Alive in the Woods by Bradford Angier, which is an actual real book. And then a book about what happened in Coffin Rock, which is fake. But again, when you're layering reality with fakeness, it's it's hard to you know, see the line where one's isn't real and one one's is fake. Heather's home is actually one of the PA's homes. Uh, it was Lonnie Glarum's uh, home that they used because again, they can't afford to you rent. Know, rent or <laughs> Airbnb yeah. or any of that shit to, uh, to find a home. They go to pick up Mike, which they're not really friends with. I think it's the first time that they're like meeting him. Yeah. So I think Mike and Josh know each other. Mike and Heather do not because she's like, you must be Mike. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which I found kind of weird. And but you know why I think that is, is because they, that's when they're talking about the gear and Mike is like, oh, I rented the data recorder. So 
to me being having been an independent filmmaker you always go with the people that have the gear even if you don't know them so it's like whatever project that you have you're gonna go with the person that oh i own a camera or i own you know a boom mic or i own you know a laptop to edit so I think that's why Mike is there is because he rented the debt. Especially because he's a, he's a friend of a friend. He's not really like a stranger stranger. You're right. The film camera that they use is called the CP16 and which was eventually sold for $10,000 on eBay. That camera? That camera that they used, that's which eventually broke. Uh, and it was the cinematographers. And there was a point where Josh, I don't know what he did to it, but he told the directors oh yeah, the lens just came off. And it's like, dude, you have to like lock and twist it right. so it doesn't just fall off. And they were very hesitant to tell the DP that basically Josh had like broken his like his baby. The video camera that they use, which is all the color footage that you see was a high eight RCA video camera that cost 500 bucks, which they bought at Circuit City. Nice. Do you guys remember Circuit, Circuit City? City? I do. I think it's a uh, spirit Halloween now. Probably. Yeah, I think all the Circuit Cities turned into that. <laughs> We get to the interior of the car and there's a song playing in the, in the radio. And that's really the only music in the film minus the credits. They originally wanted the song from the animals called, we got to get out of this place. But obviously with the budget that they had, they could not afford to uh, pay for it. So they settled for a band from Orlando called the Diggin' Lilies. And that's the song that they ended up using for that, for that scene. We get to the grocery store and they're all buying all their foods and snacks for their camping trip. What food and snacks would you take, Angie, if you were going to go explore hmm. the Blair Witch? Well, first of all, it's only two days, right? Just the weekend. Technically, yes. That was their intention was just two days. Yeah. I would take Top Ramen. Okay. Obviously. Hot dogs. Jerky. Trail mix. I'm trying to think of something like light. I wouldn't really, I don't know if I would take granola bars because I always get hungry like an hour later after I eat a granola bar. And I think that's, that's like all I can think of, of like camp food that fits in a pack. That's not going to get ruined. Mm -hmm. No alcohol. Well, obviously there's alcohol. Like actually. But that's a challenge because you can't just buy like a 12 pack. Cause right. Again, you have to carry it. it. So. To me, I would just, it would just be a bunch of hard alcohol. Yeah, I would take hard alcohol. And like, I think we see Josh with a flask at some point. So I would do that. I would just fill as many flasks as I could. Water, like maybe. Because I'm thinking 94. Yeah. It has to be water bottles or like right. a thermos or something. You can't, they didn't have life straws. So you can't take a life straw with you. Mm -hmm. So water, noodles, booze. I would take uh, Ruffles chips. Bag of chips. They're all smashed. That's fine. I'll still <laughs> eat them. Uh, hot dogs. I'll agree with you on that one. Yeah. Hard alcohol. And then maybe like a Snickers, you know, like s some candy. Yeah. Some, something sweet Sugar. to like when I'm, you know, about to pass out or <laughs> like dying out there. I would take like me up. a bag of cubed cheese. There you go. I would take that. So when they're at the grocery store buying all that, the producers of the film gave them money to essentially buy what they would actually take with them in the woods. And they blew all their money on booze and like all the shit that you see, like in that scene that that was like all their rather than like, you know, saving it, they just kind of blew it all. I all can't night. remember. Do you remember what food they get? They get marshmallows. That's okay. I was and like, then, I remember the shot of the marshmallows. 
And then the other thing too is like, you see like a second of a power bar. Yeah. They had to get the rights to use that oh power bar. God. And it was one of the more expensive things in that <laughs> fucking film. But what's interesting is that the power bar, since it's 1998 when they shot it, yeah. that power bar did not exist in 1994. Oh. It's some oatmeal grain You know shit. what? I did see a mention of, I think when they're in town something, you see like a Ford drive by and it's like, it's like a 99 Ford or something. Like it's not yeah. a 1994 car. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think it's after they're leaving, they're going into the woods. Yeah, you can yeah. see it in the background. Pull up. We get to the beginning of the documentary and there's a shot in front of the welcome to Burgettsville sign. That was really the only scene that was shot in Burgettsville. The narration with Heather was all written by her. So the directors basically said, this is your film. This is your documentary come up with that um, kind of opening dialogue that she talks about in the cemetery. So she really had to come up with that. And I think that the wording is so great because it shows off kind of the arrogance of a student filmmaker. Absolutely. You know, that arrogance that you have like, Oh, I have it under control. I'm the shit, you know, I have it. She nails that just so perfectly. And I was shocked that she was the one that came up with that. I thought it would be, Ed and uh, Dan. I really like that scene. And I really like the dialogue that she wrote because it's like, yeah, like you said, it's like something a film student would write. Or I was thinking more like if I was writing an essay on it in school, that would totally be something I would write. Especially when she's like the memories all around us etched in stone. And I was like, oh, that's a good line. Yeah. 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 And so I, I really like that kind of dialogue. That, and now that you're telling me that she wrote it, She's just really good in this movie. Yeah, she, she's really great. This is perfect casting for her. They begin to interview residents of uh, Burkittsville. Now, the directors ahead of time cast some of the uh, members or the townsfolk of, of Burkittsville, but the, the, the cast didn't know who was real or who wasn't. And so it was almost like a scavenger hunt for the actors to sort of figure out like, is this an actor? And so the, the old man with the glasses that tells the, the story of, of um, Rustin Parr, he was an actor. The woman with the uh, child, random woman that they found, her name was Susie and her daughter was named Ingrid. And then the other gentleman, I don't remember his name, but he was also a friend of one of the producers. So he was an actor. So again, like, the way that they conceptualize this is just, I think, hadn't really been done this way. Like, there's a way to, like, sort of choreograph it. But the fact that, you know, the directors and the producers had sort of set it up and said, like, all right, guys, cast, you fucking figure it out. I don't know if that had been, had been done in, in that kind of way. I don't know if I had either. And the way you're talking about how the actors that they interview one of them was actually a real, not a real person, but like a real townsperson. And the other two were actors. If you were to ask me like which one of them wasn't an actor, I probably would guess the old guy at the beginning talking about Rustin Parr. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to guess correctly. To add even more mythos to that. So the, the older gentleman, they had given him like, I think five pages of script. So he was the one that sort of sets up the whole story. And Susie and her daughter... Susie improvised that whole thing. She really had good. no idea what they were doing, what the movie was about. That to me is a great scene with the the daughter who tries to cover yeah. her 
mouth and like, don't say it, mom. And, and all I like that. When she's like, it's not true. It's not true. And then she's like, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. She was. And just, now that I know that they were, they weren't actors, especially the way her daughter is acting is, is really good. It just adds another layer that, yeah. that makes it that much more incredible. So the story with Rustin Parr, which by the way, Rustin Parr is an anagram for uh, Rasputin. Oh, and a lot of the the directors did that with with characters, which I'll I'll get into as we go with the movie. So Rustin Parr was a hermit in the fall or winter of 1940. Young kids began to disappear. A total of eight were kidnapped, and only one returned. Kyle Brody. Parr would bring the children down in Paris to his basement. He had one stand in a corner while he killed the other child by disemboweling them and carving symbols into their skin with knives. One day, Parr comes down the mountain to the main market and says, I'm finally finished. Police eventually went up to his home, searched it, and found seven bodies of the kids that had disappeared. Parr eventually confessed to all the murders and pleaded insanity. The jury convicted him of all seven murders in order for him to be hung. He apologized to the parents of the children that he had murdered, but in his last interview, Parr said that all he did was what the spirit of the witch told him to do. Reading this, I had no idea. I mean, Jesus Christ, like you want to like convince people that this wasn't real. I was just like, how do you even go about this? Like it's so layered and dense and it's a really good setup is what it is. And we don't really come from, a, I would say, a small town, but we have our stories where we're from and I'm sure whatever town anyone listening is growing up has their own stories. And so it kind of makes it relatable in that way to where you listen to the people who have been living there the longest talk about these stories and you're like, well, it's got to be some part true because they keep talking about it. So it's a really good setup kind of finding out about Rustin Parr and then the correlation to the witch and then the description of how he would kill the kids, you know, like one would face the wall while other was being killed. It kind of, is this really great setup because you already kind of have that in your head going in before they even go into the woods. Exactly. And like I said, it's, it's such great world building as a writer and it really, when shit starts to happen, you know, you kind of connect the dots and, and, and those scenes aren't even that long. I mean, it's literally the older man speaking about the story and, and adding tidbits here and there, but that, that whole sequence is like, maybe five minutes total. So yeah. It's like, it's a great way to world build without having it be this like huge, like 10, 12 minute scene. Mary Brown, who was played by Patricia Decoux. Mary Brown's house in the film is actually Patricia Decoux's home up to the wooden like makeshift gate. The gate that yeah. was actually her, her gate. How they found uh, Patty Decoux. The production of the film put out flyers at Montgomery Community College looking for interns. And Patty DeCoo was the only person to respond to the flyer. And so they don't know if she was still going to the community college or like they claim that she was like the oldest community college, you know, student uh, ever. <laughs> um, Patty was very eccentric. And I think you can tell that in the in the film. One day when they decided to go with her as um, Mary... They were driving her back uh, to her home and she was in the back seat. And there was a point when they were driving her home where she changed her pants randomly in the back seat. 
And I think one of the co-directors was sitting behind her or sitting next to her in the backseat, just like looking out the window, like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to look the other way. Um, but she was definitely a strange person. But I think that sort of, again, they hit the jackpot with her character because it, it fits really well. Mary or Patty describes the Blair Witch with the bunch of hair, black fur like on her arms. The witch also had a wool shawl. When she opened the wool shawl, she was covered in hair. So again, when I was telling you about the nightmares that I would have, yeah. it was very similar to that image. Yeah, you also mentioned her bloating. And I think we'll get to it later in the documentary of the documentary. They talk about that, I think. Yeah, they do actually, because it reminds me of another story that I'll talk about later. They talk about her being like when she's seen, she's bloating. She's not touching the floor. So when you mentioned that, that was kind of freaky. <laughs> <laughs> After they meet Mary, Heather is like, oh my God, she's so weird. And there's a moment where Heather's saying like, Mary says she's a ballerina historian writing a book on American history. And she's a scientist who does research at the Department of Energy. Uh, Patty actually believed that she was all those things in real life. And so again, adding to the more realism and, and how these characters are, you know, the, the main cast is named after their real names. And so it's just, it's a really, in 1999, it's really hard for people to sort of separate like what was real and what, what wasn't. During that scene where they're interviewing Mary, if you can tell that scene's out of focus, yeah. like it's kind of blurry. And right after that, there's a scene where Joshua's like, Oh, I was measuring in uh, meters and not feet. And so I fucked up the shot. That's what actually happened. And yeah. so that scene where Josh was talking about like, ooh, like apologizing and kind of being like, that just reminds me of when I've shot documentaries and I didn't know the camera that I was using and I yeah. just fucked it up and just like been like, whoops, I forgot Oops. to hit record or like <laughs> I erased a file on a memory card and yeah. stuff like that. I love all those like micro moments that like add again, another layer of legitimacy that these guys are like shooting a documentary for the first time. Don't know the gear and, and are just making mistakes. Like, you know, normal people would, this is where you can sort of see Heather's bossiness come through because she's like, well, the meters are in black and, and the feet are in Brown is like, you couldn't fucking tell. You couldn't, like, tell? You couldn't tell, which like you couldn't tell, like, and he even says, like, I've only used this camera like once. <laughs> and so that to me is the beginning of where you can sort of see these characters, what their roles are going to be. And like mm -hmm. Heather's like the captain of the ship. Josh is like just there to kind of have a good time, not take it seriously. And Mike starts off as being like kind of the cool guy, but then loses it. And, you know, you know, the rest of you seen the film who what character do you relate to the most? Heather. <laughs> <laughs> Just Heather? Probably because I think I relate to Heather and I think a little bit of Josh too. Mm -hmm. Mostly because I would totally do something like that where I'd be like, hey guys, there's this like urban legend. Let's go and check it out. And then Josh is kind of like, man, fuck, I don't give a fuck. Like whatever. Yeah. He's like drinking the night before. So I think I'm probably a combination of both of them. I think I'm a combination of Heather and Mike. Heather, obviously being the filmmaker and being like, hey, let's document this. Yeah. But also Mike is the one that's like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not. Yeah. Like, at one point he's like, I'm not going down there. Yeah. Like when they start hearing the sounds yeah. in, the, in the woods, yeah. that would be 
like I wouldn't have like the boldness to like push it like Heather. So yeah. that's why I'm like, yeah, if I like went into the woods and weird shit, yeah, I'd get the fuck out of there like as soon yeah, as possible. Yeah, totally. We're inside the hotel and it's the first night that they're sort of sleeping, you know, all together. The raw footage that they shot for that scene was over an hour and a half and they trimmed it down to like, like a few minutes. Two minutes. The three of them really did get hammered because like I said, they, all the production money that they gave to them, they just used it on booze at, yeah. at the store. The tension, the real life tension between Josh and Heather was really already through the roof at this point. Because they had to cut a lot of them yelling at each other and they took it really over the top. And so I feel like a lot of that that you see in the film is absolutely real. That they just didn't really like each other and Heather was really aggressive and Josh wasn't really aggressive. But, you know, they just didn't really, their sensibilities just weren't compatible with each other. Adding on to the relationship between Josh and Heather, you were talking about how at this point, you can kind of already see some sort of tension. I was browsing around the Blair Witch website, which is still around. And it looks exactly like it did in 1999. I browsed through it and it traumatized Brought me all over again. So I was looking through it and they have Heather's entire diary. And if you look through it, she mentions Josh a few times and you kind of get the sense that maybe they dated. Oh, really? And in the documentary of the documentary that I'm going to mention later, they interview Josh's girlfriend because in the movie he mentions that he has a girlfriend back home and then if he's not there, she's going to freak out. And she kind of talks about how she knows that Josh and Heather were friends and she was just kind of like, eh, about it, like not so cool. So kind of knowing that, it kind of adds another layer. Now, is that diary supposed to be Heather's character writing it or like... The real Heather. It's Heather's it. character because it's in the website. It's among the stuff that they found. Okay. And in the movie, when she's like, these are the books I'm taking. The diary is like right there. After the night in the hotel, they start heading into the woods and they run into two guys that are fishing. Both of them were real actors and they paid them 50 bucks each. Nice. For the scene. They're supposed to be father-in-law and son-in-law. And I really love their like chemistry because like they kind of have this back and forth. Where like the son-in-law is saying like, well, I think this about this. And then the phone is like, no, you're full of shit. Like, like this. That's not what happened. Exactly. Yeah. And so they like start contradicting themselves. Before we get any further, I want to talk about how great casting directors are. Lisa Dane, who was the casting director for this film, she found all these people for the most part. And so, you know, that sort of gets lost in movies in general, how crucial casting directors are. And I really believe that that should be an award, should be an Oscar. Totally. It should be a Golden Globe, whatever you want to call it. But casting directors are absolutely crucial into casting your favorite films and have them come out the way that they do. And, you know, if one role was just a little bit off. And the whole thing would fall apart. The whole thing would fall apart and it wouldn't be the same film that, that uh, you, you know, idolize. And in the scene that you're talking about with the, the, son-in-law and the father-in-law that's where they mention about the witch whose feet don't touch the ground mm -hmm. and it reminds me of that story about the devil from mexico you want to tell him the story there is a story i don't know if it's just mexico or south america even uh hispanic latino culture i'm not sure how far it extends but the way we heard it 
was that there was a very popular nightclub in somewhere in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's never specified. <laughs> it's never specified. Sometimes it's like a nightclub that someone went to or like my friend went to this nightclub once. And the story goes that there was this girl that was there and she was alone. And this guy walked in who was like a very, very handsome guy who's like the most handsome and immediately asked this girl to dance. And they start dancing. And when they start dancing, they start floating and their feet don't touch the ground. And somehow that translated to this man was the devil. And that's kind of just something that we heard growing up. And so when I heard them mention this, that's like immediately what I thought of. And maybe in the back of my mind when I was having those nightmares, that whole story, because I mean, I had heard it when I was yeah, we already knew like it. five years old or whatever. And until maybe a few years ago, I thought it was just kind of like a story that our family had. But a friend of mine who also has parents who are from Mexico mentioned it too. And I was like, wait, is this the same? But his, the way he told it, it took place in a different area. It wasn't like a club. It was like some, something else, but like the, the basis of the story was the same. It's probably just like El Cucuy or like, yeah, just like the boogeyman. urban legend, La Llorona. One of the fishermen begins to tell a story of a girl back in the late 1800s, Robin Weaver. Robin wandered off into the woods one day and got lost. Three days later, Robin appears back in her grandmother's porch. Everyone is mystified by it. She was babbling about an old woman whose feet never touched the ground. And so there, there's that relationship with the uh, son-in-law and the father-in-law. And the father-in-law is like, you damn kids, you'll never learn. And, and as you know, the cast is about to go into the woods. And they end it with the whole reference of Coffin Rock, which if you have watching the film, that's like the second time that they mentioned Coffin Rock. They begin their way to Coffin Rock. When I first watched it or rewatched it again, I realized their fucking packs are so fucking massive and they've obviously never camped in their lives. My boyfriend goes camping for two days and his pack looks just like that. Are you serious? Yes. Because what is he packing in there? So he's packing a tent. You pack the sleeping mat, which is the same sleeping mat they have in the movie. You can see it at the bottom of their their pack. It's like a little, it almost looks like bubble wrap. Uh, and I think theirs is green. His is blue. So you pack that. You pack stuff to cook with. So like camping pans and camping plates and shit. All the food you need, you pack your water. They're packing extra batteries, tapes, camera equipment video equipment so it totally makes sense that their packs are that big at least i think you know but i mean it's also and you keep in mind it's supposed to be 1994 nowadays a lot of that gear is a lot slimmer a lot lighter so i so their packs should be bigger going to that that actress packed all their camping gear themselves so it really that completely makes, a lot makes of sense, sense yeah. because just the way i feel like they could have been a lot lighter and a lot more organized once they parked their car the actor's actually headed in the wrong direction. So like as they're moving away from the car, yeah. they're supposed to go the other way. But it's a cool shot because they walk out of frame and then you and just you see, see the, the car, car there. And, and that's sort of the last time that you see it. This was the beginning of them being in the woods. And this film was shot in chronological order. So as the movie goes, that's how the way that they shot it. And so because the first time that they go out into the woods... They're going the wrong way. The directors freaked out and said, we're never going to be able to film this movie because if they can't take a basic instruction <laughs> and be like, go south and they go north, uh, they thought there's no way we're going to be gonna able to make this movie. Yeah. This leads into how this movie was made. And 
I remember back in the day hearing tidbits because once I figured out that this wasn't real, I was like, how were they able to achieve this? Back in 1999, there were all these rumors of this film being shot by a small crew. Was it actually the actors that were shooting it with, with them running the cameras? Like, how were they able to pull this off? And the way that they actually did it was that the cast was given a GPS system. Back in 1998, GPS was like the modern, most modern technology. It wasn't, I mean, now we have it on our phones and our watches and it's very easy to come by. Back in the day, it wasn't so easy to come by. And so the device was like as big as your phone and it strictly just did that. You know, it was just GPS system. The crew, the production crew would set up waypoints. And so basically just markers on their GPS. And so every day the cast would just follow the waypoint on their, on their GPS that they had. The cast knew that they had to hit those waypoints and they knew that they hit the waypoint when they saw a white milk crate with an orange bicycle flag sticking out of it. Inside the milk crate were 35 millimeter cylinders. Now back in the photography days when you would shoot on film, there were these like small cylinders they would use those and each one of those cylinders had the actor's initials on it. And inside those cylinders were specific instructions for the movie. That's really cool. And they weren't allowed to share it with each other. So every character got their own role, not knowing what the other actor was going to do. And so that adds again to the frustration, the insanity that they, they dwell on these, on this journey in the, in the woods. That's so cool. And they just repeated that every day, you know, they would camp out, wake up the next day, go to the next waypoint and then just redo it over and over again. That sounds like a haunt thing I would want to go to. Like if you went with like, it was like up to four people you meet in the fucking Los Angeles forest or something. And yeah, same thing. They would just be like, meet at this point and then you would find whatever with instructions. You wouldn't be able to share it with the other people you were with. That'd be so cool. Or just like even like with the <laughs> rooms, right? The... Like escape rooms? Like an escape room? Yeah. If you were able to do that. Yeah. And maybe not just in a room, but maybe like in a, an abandoned hotel mm-hmm. or like, you know, going down a hallway. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Right? Coffin Rock is in the Black Hills Forest near Burkittsville. This is a site where five men who were searching for the missing Robin, which was told by the two fishermen, were found with their bodies tied together at the arms and legs. Each had been disemboweled and were in an advanced state of decomposition strange pagan symbols carved into their forehands. When those who discovered them returned with help, the bodies had vanished without a trace. Now I saw still of what supposedly they were supposed to look like. And it's really fucked up. It's a, uh, like a still still or like an etch. Like it's a like sketch. an etch. It's yeah. Like I saw that too. It's no, fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's You're just, just like, sketch. whatever. It's fine. Dude, but just imagining that. I like, know. I, I get it. Um, I get it. I still thought it was fucked up. In real life, Coffin Rock was named Hunter's Ridge. And actually, in the film, you see that kind of like big stone rock thing. Yeah. That's, that's Hunter's Ridge. But to, I don't remember which co-director, it looked like a coffin. Yeah. You know, and so they just kind of renamed coffin it Coffin Rock fly. is a cool name. Right. Like, that's a great name. You have the scene there where Heather begins to narrate from the Coffin Rock book. And... After she does, after she does her spiel, she starts like self-analyzing like, oh, did I say this like too quickly or too slowly? And did I hit all my marks or whatever? And it goes back to the whole like student film aspect of it of like, 
Am I getting the shots? Because I've shot a few documentaries in my time. And half the time you feel like you're not getting the shots that you want. Yeah. And, and then at, at one point she's like, you know what? I got the audio so I could just like shoot over could, the creek or something. And just edit it and cut right. it up and make it work. But I, again, I love these small moments where you really, not only is it supposed to be a horror movie, but it adds to the be- believability that these kids are are trying to create this documentary. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, how much time do they get to like train like a crash course? like two or three days yeah like really small it's pretty great because i was going to mention they mention you know the dad and just like a, but like the way they're speaking is like they've been doing this for a while also once they're setting up camp heather talks about how she rented their tent because she didn't have a tent big enough right and i was just like oh man those people that rented the tent out to her are just like never gonna get that tent back <laughs> yeah what's interesting about that in real life the cast never set up the tents. It was always the production team that would set the, the tents up for the the, okay. the cast. And it's interesting later on in the film, you notice like when shit starts going awry, they're like, oh, we got to get out of here. But they're just standing there and the tent's <laughs> still set up. And, and you think, well, if they really want to get the fuck out of there, like I would just be shoving the tent in yeah. the bag and like getting out yeah, of there. Yeah. But they did it because they knew that someone was going to come in and, you know, although do the tent for I them. mean, if I was like, we have to get out of here, I don't think I would think think about putting my tent back. I just leave it. Yeah, I would leave it too. So they have their first night out in the tents and they're inside the tent. It was really tough for the editing team again to find lighthearted moments because even in the beginning of the shoot, the cast was in real life beginning to be annoyed with each other. Again, Josh and Heather just, it feels like they didn't really get along. And so these moments in the film where they are lighthearted and joking were like maybe 1% of the actual footage because the rest of it was just them just like annoying the shit out of each other and just arguing back and forth. Josh claims to hear a cackling. What's the creepiest noise that you've heard while camping? Okay, now that you reminded me of this, I'm going to talk about my camping story. So we were camping, I think I was probably like six. I I have no idea. But we were camping, you were there, and I, I know I've told you this, and I don't think you remember. I do not remember this. We were camping, and it was you, me, and one of our other friends in the tent. And we were telling scary stories, reading from scary stories to tell in the dark, probably. And I remember there was like, I think we had like a generator or like a light that was hung up against the tent to where it was shining on the tent to where if anyone walked behind the tent, it would form a shadow. And I remember hearing this like, it wasn't a growl or like a screech. It was just, it was something between a growl and a screech and seeing like a person shape, but with like spiky, like a spiky head and just like shake our tent. And like when I mentioned it to mom, she was like, oh, that was like one of our friends. He was like drunk and he wanted to like scare you guys. But like I very vividly remember the shape of like the person with like the spiky head. Okay, I get that it would be one person, but where did the spiky head come I know. And like, I don't think you remember that, right? I don't remember that at all. Yeah. And you were like obviously older than me. It's something that I should have remembered, but. Totally. But other than that, when I've been camping, I don't think I've heard anything other than like steps. Mm-hmm. Or like rustling, which I assume is always like a squirrel or whatever. Animals, nature. Yeah. What about yeah. you? I don't know. I mean, I haven't done that much camping. Like when we did go camping, I was like way younger. But even then, I don't remember ever being like, what also, was that? Also, like when we went camping, it wasn't like 
camping. No, it like was it was like, camping, but it wasn't like in the woods. Like it was like in this a instance. camping resort <laughs> yeah. type of deal where it's like designed for camping. But it wasn't like RV camping or glamping. It no. was just like we were still in a tent on the floor, but yeah. there was bathrooms like a little ways away. Yeah. And yeah. it was, it was designed for that. Like it's yeah. not like going into the middle of random woods and not knowing where you're at and just yeah. popping down and setting up a tent. Have you ever taken a dump or a piss in the woods? Cause that's the next scene. Yeah. I've peed in the woods. Taking a dump is my cutoff line because. What if you had to though? Hold it. What? I'm not going to shit in the woods. I, so going back to, I was talking about my boyfriend earlier when he goes camping, it's like a five mile hike to the campsite, which is already like, no, but he camps like camp camps like they do in the movie. There's no like bathroom five feet away or whatever. And he asked me once if I wanted to go with him. And I was like, dude, I'm not going to shit in the woods. Like, I'm not going to dig a hole and like poop in the woods. And he was like, oh, I'm going to buy you like a little bathroom, like receptacle <laughs> thing. And I was like, I'm not going to shit in the woods. Just a so, pan. But yeah, that's like my cutoff is like pooping in the woods. I guess if I like absolutely had to and like couldn't. But that's what I'm saying. Like, hold it. Well, yeah. then obviously. Yeah. What about you? Would you ever piss or shit in the woods or have you ever? I've pissed in the woods. I mean, I'm pissed in a lot of places. Because you can. Because I'm a dude and I can. But I've never taken a dump in a public <laughs> place. But I I feel like if I had to, like I would do it. Like I wouldn't. It would take a lot for me to have to. The cast had to. They didn't have any other way to to deal with that. And so that was, again, part of it. I think there's a scene where like Heather's like. Yeah, she's pink. Is she the Blair Witch? <laughs> and like she's like taking a piss or whatever. But yeah, Heather talked about how it was such a pain in the ass because obviously she's a woman and she's like, oh yeah, the dudes were like fine. But you know, as a woman, you know, it was a, it was a real struggle. I would just be like eating Pepto-Bismol the whole time. That's still not going to help. It stops you from pooping. It's not going to dissolve your poop. <laughs> the next scene is where they begin to sense that they're getting lost and being led by Heather who doesn't know what she's doing. And it begins with how Heather has a map. And basically they're supposed to be getting to the cemetery or the pile of rocks and they're still not there yet. And so Josh especially begins to question Heather about like, are we going the right way? Like, do you know how to read a map? And, and it just made me think about maps in 1994, how obviously we didn't have smartphones then and how difficult maps are to read. Like I think about, I used to have this, you know, this map guide when I drove and this was like in the late nineties and that's all I had to like, know, like if I was going to make, take a road trip or whatever, like how archaic that is now. And especially if you're in the woods and it's the first time, yeah, you're going to get fucking lost like right away. I would have trouble finding my way around a map in like a metropolitan area, which is like laid out for you. If I was in the woods, even though there's a map of the woods, I would, I would get lost. I think in a city it'd be more doable, but when you're just like in woods and trails, you're and just like, there's a tree. It's hard to read the geography of it. Like yeah. I would just be like, yeah, I don't know which way I'm going. Right. Even though Heather does have a compass, but I don't half the time I'm thinking, does she know how to read the compass? Cause I don't know. It's, it's, it looks sketchy to she me. She has that book about how to survive in the woods, but she doesn't reference it. Or at least in the movie, like you, you don't like, see her. in my book, surviving in the woods. <laughs> You get to the scene where they're crossing the stream over that log. They really had to do that. 
And the directors were like freaking the fuck out because not only are they lugging the 60 millimeter camera, but they're lugging the dad recorder. And they were just like, for the love of God, please, you know, (laughs) don't ruin our gear. And that, that was another thing too, is like how they did the film is that the directors and the production crew were always, you know, ahead of the next stop where the cast was going to be. And so they would observe with binoculars and they had walkie talkies. And so they were like in the forest sort of observing like sketchily like voyeurs. Yeah. And just crossing their fingers that, that they, uh, (laughs) cast would survive. That's putting a lot of trust in your cast. So they get to the pile of rocks or the cemetery. And there's a moment where Josh accidentally hits the rocks over and like Heather's freaking out. And if we go back to Mary Brown, she tells them a story from the Bible, but it doesn't in the film, it doesn't reference exactly what the story is from the Bible. People speculate that it could be from Genesis 3152, which reads this pile of rocks and this rock set on and will remind us of our agreement. I will never go past this pile to hurt you and you must never come to my side of them to hurt me. So in a way it's sort of warning if you cross these rocks, this is kind of like the point of no return where the Blair Witch could potentially wreak havoc and and this is their point, their moment where they could just turn around and go back home. Watching the movie, I think this was probably my second time watching the movie completely. And the first time was like years ago. So this was pretty much the first time of me watching this movie as I can remember it. And once Josh knocked the rocks down, I was like, this is not going to go over. well. It's not going <laughs> to go well for you. And there's seven piles of rocks, which represents the seven children that originally disappeared. And she can't, Heather counts them, right? Yep. Yeah. I guess when they were actually filming it, she actually went to nine. So they built the pile. They, they oh, built okay. more piles, but to connect the dots back to the uh, par uh, incident with the kids, they stopped it right at seven. And like I was saying before, not only is this the point of no return, but if I was actually camping and I saw that shit, yeah, I'm out. I'm done. You know what? I don't know if I would, because they're going to a cemetery and piles of rocks are traditional markers for burial sites. If it was some random woods that I wasn't familiar with, yeah. that's where I would turn around. But if it was somewhere where I did know where I was going, familiar but also, with. They're looking for it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, but I guess. But doesn't, isn't there a moment where Heather says like, oh, I've been through these woods before. I think she says something like that. Yeah. So that makes me skeptical that she hadn't been around there just to to shoot the documentary because she would do something like that. They build a campfire after their uh, moment with the rocks. And there's a part where they start uh, singing the the theme to Gilligan's Island. I think Mike starts doing it. Yeah. That was the most expensive part of the (laughs) whole shoot to get the rights to Gilligan's Island. I thought it was going to be the power bar. That was the second most (laughs) expensive part of the film. Before they go to sleep, they start hearing branches snapping all around them. This was the directors and the producers being again around them and just like snapping. Do they know? No. I'm sure the actors knew something was coming. Yeah. But they didn't know what it was. And imagine just again, like we were talking about, oh, what's the scariest shit that you've heard? To hear the crackling of branches breaking and like just off in the distance. All those reactions of them, I think, are just 100% genuine. I think if I heard branches breaking while camping, I wouldn't be that freaked out. But if they started breaking all around me, then I would probably be freaked out. And I think at that point, um, 
they go outside to sort of explore like, oh, where are those noises coming from? And in real life, they spotted the co-director, Ed. And I think Heather just started chasing him <laughs> just <laughs> randomly. That's funny. There's that moment again with Heather being very bossy where she tells Mike, like, cause Heather wants to go explore the sounds and Mike's like, I'm not going to fucking yeah, go. Yeah, that's that one scene where he's like, I'm the, not going down there. Yeah, I'm not going down there. The original scene was way longer than what we saw in the, in the finished product. Heather got so into the character that she began to like verbally abuse Mike and Josh, like really bad. And they talk about, obviously all of that was cut out. The directors had to like basically come in, which they hardly ever did. Like they, again, they were ahead of, of the cast Mm -hmm. and they had to like sit them down and be like, okay, you guys need to chill out. And specifically Heather, like you need to calm down. You can't be this aggressive. And it sort of led to the next morning where she's sort of apologizing to Mike. And Mike is like, dude, you had you, I was wigging out and like you were telling me to go down there. And so that apology was like genuine Genuine. because basically the directors told Heather, you're starting to lose these guys because you're being just over the top too aggressive. And if you keep doing this, you're, you're losing the respect of, of them and you can't lose them or else we're, this movie's done. The next day, which it begins to rain, it rained for 24 hours straight. So the cast was just dealing with rain and you could see in their faces how fucking miserable they are. The rain really fucked up the production because the cast began to miss their points on the GPS system. And so they began to just wander off and like the director's like, where the fuck are you guys going? (laughs) Like you're, you're missing all these markers. And they began to catch up to the production team because they were in the rain and they just wanted to just keep moving. And Mm -hmm. so they would do base camp in front of where the cast was. And since the cast was moving so fast, they would almost catch up catch to them. Up. So they would have to sort of go a different direction and so that they wouldn't see them and, and just continue the, the progress of the film. This is the part where they decide maybe we should go back to the car and they really become lost. And Mike begins to say like, I got to go return the dad by tomorrow. Right. And like, and Josh is like, I have to go to work. I got to go to work. And again, another like brilliant part of like doing a documentary yeah. when you have a real job and you don't have a lot of money and that you, you got to go back everything. to the real world. <laughs> oh man, that, that part just hit like my soul, like, because I've been in that situation so many times and you're just starting to think, Oh, I got to return all this gear. And like, if it's late, they're going to charge me. X yeah, amount I was gonna of money. Like, so what do they do if you're late with the gear? They charge you for another day. Which depending on how much gear you rent, like it sucks. It really sucks. Here we begin their second night in the tent and they begin to hear the same branch breaking sounds in the distance. The night was in reality, super freezing. And you can tell because Heather comes out and she's like documenting that that you can see the camera shake. And that was like all real. And she's like, oh, this fucking freezing. It's It's terrible. And then it leads to the next morning, which is where they find three piles of rocks outside their tents. The directors and producers made all these piles outside the tent. They tried doing it while the cast was sleeping, but their footsteps and breaking branches with their feet and like the dry brush uh, woke up the cast. And so they could tell that something was happening. And so they had to come up with a word so the actors would stay in the tent while the production did whatever they were going to do. And so the, the word that they come over was taco. Taco. Yeah, taco. <laughs> so basically, if they were approaching the tent and we're going to do something to fuck up the actors or 
or create some kind of mood. Yeah. You just hear a taco and like <laughs> the actors would just stay in their tents, didn't look out. Figure it out later. That's how they were able to pull that off. At this point, it's pretty clear that Josh is over it and yeah. just wants to go back to the car and get the fuck out of the woods. And this is the moment where they can't find the map. And like Josh is asking Heather, where's the map? And she's like, it's not with me. And Josh is like, I'm not going to go in your pants <laughs> to find the map if that's yeah. what you want. And then if you've seen the movie, there's a moment where Josh pans the camera to Mike. And if you knew what happened to the map, there's a moment where Mike looks 100% guilty and like <laughs> is like, oh, I don't know what happened to it. Um, but I, that's one of my favorite sort of just random pans mm -hmm. to it. So they're officially lost at this point. No map. They were originally going to kill off Mike. Okay. So Mike was the one that's <clears throat> supposed to go missing before they get to the house. But because of the constant arguing with Josh and Heather, <laughs> uh, this was the point where the directors really? were like, we need to kill Josh instead ASAP. I love Heather's line of, it's very hard to get lost in America these days and it's even harder to stay lost. Oh, I know. I saw it and I was like, is it though? <laughs> Especially in, in that time. Yeah. I think it's very totally. doable to get lost. And then there's also like a line where I think it's Josh saying like, by this time, if we don't go back, my girlfriend will know that I'm not back. Yeah. And like your boyfriend yeah, will know that Josh. I'm back. And within 24 hours, like they should. They're going to come looking for us. Come looking for us. How long do you think it honestly would take for someone to come and look for you? In the 90s or now? In that time. And also like law enforcement or like someone of my family to be like, hey. Either one. I think it would probably be like 24 hours really? knowing our mom. But I mean, for them to actually get even close to finding you. Oh, you mean for someone to actually find me? How long it would take? Or get in the vicinity. Oh, I don't even. Well, I'm assuming like if it were to happen and I was in the woods and I was like, mom, I'm going to be home this day. And I wasn't. She'd immediately start freaking out and start calling whatever. And then I would assume they would send out like park rangers who knew the area. So I don't think it would take them that long to find us. Especially, I don't think where they were. Well, they were in a park. Especially if they're like as inexperienced as they seem to be like Heather and Mike and Josh, I don't think it would take them that long. And they'd be like, you guys thought you were how deep in the woods and you were really like right there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's kind of how they were. But I think if you were lost in real woods, I think it would take more than 24 or 48 so hours too. for them to sort of even figure out exactly where you were. And again, this is before, you know, tracking your phone mm -hmm. and just being able to find you a lot quicker than, than what they could have then. Mike kicks the map into the creek. During the production, Mike actually kicked the map in frustration into the creek. So it actually happened. I'm kind of glad you said that because when I was watching it and he's like, I kicked the map into the creek. I was like, why? That's the worst way to get rid of a map. Like, why would you kick it into the creek and not throw it into the creek or like rip? I don't know. It just seemed like fake to me where he was like oh i kicked it into the creek i don't know it just seemed like a dumb excuse well i think the buildup seemed fake because he knew that had happened and it actually when he kicked it into the creek in real life he thought that josh and heather had seen him do it but they never did oh, okay and so he had that information and he was just waiting for the right moment to reveal to add to the story but originally that wasn't part of the plan so he just sort of did it on his own out of real frustration of like 
this is not going well. This production is not going well. Yeah. And so there's that scene where he finally admits and he's like, I fucking kicked that map into the creek because it was fucking useless. And like Heather and Josh are like, I hope he's fucking kidding. Yeah. And just Heather just goes off and like screaming <laughs> at the top of her lungs. This is another point of no return because it's like you don't have a map, even though maybe they're not good at reading it. But now you're really now you have nothing. So they reach a part of the forest and that's when they see those iconic, you know, uh, stick figures, which I think one of the directors call them like the, the first one that they see, which is like really thick, like Chewbacca. Heather continues to push the guy's buttons and continues to record. And as we're like, turn that fucking camera off. We just need to get out of here. And and finally, Heather admits that they're like lost. This is like the first moment in the film where they where she finally admits that we're fucking lost. And I don't know how to get us out of this. We get into the tent later that night and they begin to hear what appears to be sounds of children outside. Maybe a baby screaming. Then the whole tent starts to shake and then they run out of it. And again, when I talked about how like one of my first images that I ever saw of Blair Witches, that black and white shot of Heather running into the forest. One of the most iconic shots of the whole film. And it's even watching it now, just still... I don't know if it's because it's in black and white or they're running in the middle of a forest mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. There's just something eerie about it. And it's not planned. Like it's not a professional camera person behind the camera. Yeah. There's just something about it that just like creeps the shit out of me. I think it's just the buildup is like, so, so they hear the weird sounds. It first starts to sound like hooting from like owls. And then you hear like, it almost sounds like someone passing phlegm or like throwing up. Like, it's just like a, uh, like in the back. And then, yeah, you, you hear laughter and it sounds like children's laughter and voices. And from there, the tent starts to shake. So I think that whole buildup kind of adds to the whole scene. And the shaking of the tent is the directors and the producers like outside just shaking yeah. the shit out of it. They didn't know what was going to happen. So again, the reaction is all real. The sounds of the kids playing came from two kids that one of the director's moms had babysat. And so they just recorded the kids on a cassette tape. And during the scene, uh, the production team had boom boxes playing that live. Can you imagine that shit? No. You're in the middle of the forest. No. And my, uh, Mike, the actor said that was the creepiest, most terrifying things during the production. I can't even imagine what yeah. that would be like. And so Heather's running off into, uh, the middle of nowhere. And my favorite is like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. That reaction is the uh, art director was running alongside her, uh -huh. Rick Moreno. And Rick was running dressed in long johns oh, and white pantyhose over his no. face. So again, That's another thing of like just so randomly bad. shit, see that shit. And so they're all freaking out, running out. And then they're, I think it's like Mike or Josh that's saying like, turn the lights off, turn the lights off. Yeah. Dude, the, I listened to the movie with headphones. I did too. Dude, when he's saying all lights off was just beyond terrifying. Like just the tone of it and just like, and it's all black. You don't see anything. I was listening um, to it in the middle of the day is when I was watching the movie. And at first I started watching it without headphones and I was like, no, I'm going to miss like a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So I put the headphones on and I like cranked it up. And this scene specifically I like jam the headphones into my ear and I was like, okay, okay, this is happening. <laughs> and like in the middle, it's, it's freaky still. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For as low budget as this movie is, I think their sound design was like really on point. 
And um, they were, I think they were able to add a lot of ambiance that wasn't there when they released it in, in Sundance. All of, like the like crickets and like just sounds of the forest were, were added later on. The next morning, Josh, Mike and uh, Heather wake up and this is where Josh discovers like there's like blue jelly on his uh, pack. That blue jelly was actually KY jelly. <laughs> I was going to guess actually when they were talking about it. Especially because we've mentioned it on this podcast before is KY jelly being used for spit and whatever. So I was like, what would be the cheapest thing to use as slime? There's a scene where Heather and Mike are struggling with the camera because that's when Mike is like yelling at Heather yeah. again, turn the fucking camera off. And you see them struggling for it. And it looks like Heather bites Mike. She yeah. really did fucking yeah. bite him. And that's his reaction of like. I didn't realize it. I, I think I was, I looked away or something, but I know she mentions it later. She's like, I'll fucking bite you again. And I was like, oh my God, she bit it. She was ruthless, man. Like, but it adds to her character. Yeah, and, totally. And just her yeah. aggressiveness and like her, I think one of the directors talks about how she's like the perfect Captain Ahab where she's like oh, delusional really good. and like trying to capture the Blair Witch and. Gonna yeah, have to was, write that paper. Right. Mike begins to think that they're being followed because he doesn't really buy into the Blair Witch even at this point. And so he thinks, you know, all the rocks and the and the stick figures were are made by someone that's following them. And there's a line after that conversation where Heather says, um, I don't think that's possible. This is America. We've destroyed most of our natural resources. <laughs> And then Josh randomly starts to sing America the Beautiful. And I think Mike follows along with it. And they're yeah. like just like kind of marching through the middle of the forest. And I think that's like sort of the mutiny part where they're just like fucking over Heather. They're like so over it. And they just want to get out of there <laughs> as, as quickly as they, as they can. They essentially end up going in circles and they go back to where they started, where that's there's the crossing of the, of the uh, little stream there. Yeah. Um, and at that point, do you think it's the Blair Witch playing tricks on them? Or do you think they're just that lost that they just really went in a full circle? There's a theory I'm going to talk about later, which is what I really think. Okay. But at this point, upon first viewing, I think it's just them kind of just losing it because they haven't eaten. They're at each other's throats. You know, they all hate Heather at this point. Everyone's been arguing. So I think it's just as simple as that. You know, like everyone's angry and they're not thinking straight. They don't have a map. So they could easily just walk in a circle. Right. Yeah. But the, the the movie does a really good job at disorienting you. And with every kind of reveal, I, I, I think this is a big reveal, especially when Heather starts to cry and she's like, that's not the same log. That is not the same log. And then she starts freaking out. They do a really good job. And it's just like devastating. And you're like, fuck, they've been walking around in a circle for who knows how long they're going to have to camp out again. All the shit that happens happens at night. So they're just like in for it again. Josh's final night. They're inside the tent and Heather is like sewing up her pants or somebody's pants. And they're talking about like what they would do if they weren't there, which in any movie, you never do that because you know, you're going <laughs> to die. You're not coming back. You're going to die there. And I think it's Josh talking about like, oh, my mother's mashed potatoes mm -hmm. and, and all this other things. And Every time again that someone talks about that shit, you're, you're dead. The next morning they can't find Josh. And that's where like, Josh, like Heather's screaming her head off trying yeah. to find him. They can't really hear any response. And 
And it's just adding to the concern of what the hell is happening. And, and they think that maybe Josh wandered off and is just like, I'm just going to do my own thing because I'm over being with you guys. Later that night, it's Heather and Mike in the tent. They haven't found Josh, but now in the distance, you can hear Josh yelling in pain in the distance. That part is terrifying. I fucking hated that, especially with headphones on. It was so bad. They actually had Josh now part of the production crew. Yeah. And they would just be like, go over here and How just fun for fucking him. <laughs> yell. And then go over here and yell yeah. and just mess with, with Heather and Mike. Um, but even then, they, don't, they still don't know that it's him. They think that maybe someone's, again, Mike thinking that they're being followed. Then maybe it's someone impersonating Josh. Which is kind of the most logical thing. I guess if I was in that situation, I'd be like, dude, we're like this podunk Maryland town. Like, of course, it's probably a bunch of hillbillies that know the forest better <laughs> than we do. They see all these dumbass kids coming in to try and like document the Blair Witch. I'm sure people hate people coming here talking about it. So I would totally probably be like Mike and be like, no, it's just a bunch of fucking people fucking with us. And I always think about the fishermen's like fucking kids. Yeah, are you ever going to learn yeah, yeah, to yeah. stop going into and the And I woods? guess if you were to think back that far, you'd be like, it's probably them. Yeah, you know? Yeah, totally. The next morning, Heather finds a bunch of twigs wrapped in what appears to be part of Joss's shirt, right? Yeah, That's, it looks like his plaid shirt. In reality, when they planted those sticks... Heather originally threw the sticks away without opening it. The directors had to intervene. That was like the second time they had to do that and say, hey, Heather, maybe you should open to see what like it's inside because it's really important to the movie. Yeah, because even in the movie, she throws them the first time because she doesn't tell Mike. She's like, you know what? I'm throwing it out. I'm throwing it. And she like throws it. Then we cut to Mike and he's really starting to lose it. And that's when he's like, Kind of he's leaning like back rock, and forth yeah. and he's like smoking a cigarette and like he's he like, could I really found cigarettes. Feel. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently that scene was supposed to be again way over the top, way longer, but it didn't really add to the the story, mm -hmm. moving the story forward. So they sort of just cut it to that scene. Heather finally unwraps the twigs and finds a bigger piece of the shirt with a bloody tooth and hair and freaks out. And again, that's her real reaction because she didn't know what was going to be inside. The teeth came from a dentist and those were real locks of Joshua's hair. Guesses to whether it's a finger or other body parts. Um, they don't ever really specify, but they do talk about how fans talk about how like maybe it was his testicles or oh, other parts. I didn't even see that. I yeah. saw that it was maybe his tongue. Yeah. When I first thing. watched it, I assumed it was his scalp oh. because his hair was there. I didn't even see the teeth when I saw it this time. I was just like, I saw the hair and I saw the blood and the patch and I was like, oh, it's his scalp. Like, that's just immediately what my mind went to. The directors aren't very specific with what they use, but like one of them just kept saying meat. Okay. And it reminded me of Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. A the lot of guesses too. Yeah. Like, just like not even planned, guys. Yeah, not, not, even, not planned. even planned. Heather, like you said, doesn't tell Mike. Again, saving information. And there's a part where she's like, I'm okay, I'm fine. And then she's trying to get the pack. Yeah. And, and, her, and her hair gets stuck in the thing, which is, again, another happy accident that happened. Just that's to a great, add to. That's a great thing. At this point, Heather and jo or Heather and Mike are just like done. Like yeah. it just feels like we're fucked. We're going to stay in this uh, forest for the rest of our lives and just going to end up dead. And there's, I love the moment where Mike starts eating the dry leaf. And he, she's like, are you eating that leaf yeah, dry? Yeah. We get to the iconic shot that just made it world famous. 
It's a shot with Heather pointing the camera right at her face. She thought she was framing her entire face, but it ended up being, you know, profile, yeah. which again, just there's so many happy accidents yeah. in this film. A lot of great compositions and all credit to the cast because again, they had a two day film crash course and that was it. And they yeah. shot it themselves. Um, and so a, that iconic shot was just, you know, Heather pointing the camera and she's confessing her mistakes and how she regrets bringing Mike and Josh along and apologizing to her parents and basically saying that she's going to die there, that they're both going to die there. A lot of people speculated that that scene was faked because her tears were coming out of the wrong place so that they weren't even real tears. Also that you could see more lights in the reflection of her eyes and that it meant that there was a bigger crew there and then you could see the crew members there. Yeah. Um, which is all false. It was literally one light source, the camera pointing at Heather, and that was it. There was How no one else. Are the tears else. coming from a different place? I don't know. People were just being dumb. I do love how she doesn't blink the whole time, which is hard to do when you're crying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's a brilliant performance. Yeah. Like she just nails it. Um, my favorite line is, I'm too scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. Yeah. Which yeah. is terrifying when you think about trying to be in a moment like that is just like it's yeah. just beyond terrifying they hear josh's voice again and it says please follow my voice and that's when mike and heather sort of go into the house um which neither one of them knew that there was a house so oh. mike's reaction when he's like oh there's a house Fucking there house yeah yeah uh they did not expect a house there the real house, which was called the Griggs House, was a historic home located in Granite, Maryland. It was a two-story house constructed in the mid-19th century. It was part of the uh, Patapsco Valley State Park, which we talked about. That's where they shot most of the, uh, the woods in the film. After filming, the state of Maryland announced that it would demolish the, host, the historic home. Uh, funds were raised to save the home based on the success of the movie. And the state released press announcements that the property would be spared. However, the house was demolished at a later date without an announcement. Blah, blah. Yeah. The voice of Josh, because Josh was done with the film at this point, yeah. but they pre-recorded his, his voices was the same technique. They had boom boxes okay. all around the house. We finally start going into the inside of the house and you start seeing like, there's like kind of graffiti there that was all the art direction designing it because originally there was other graffiti there, but they had to like paint over it yeah. and, and sort of design for what the movie was going to be the climax to the end. Rick, the art director designed all that stuff in the handprints that you eventually mm -hmm. see of the kids were his nephews. And so they basically took a day and just like, Hey kids, let's put some, you know, when I saw on, those handprints the, the first time, I, I guess I kind of forgot that it was black and white film. And I was like, oh, those are soot handprints or like tar or whatever. And then I was like, wait, this movie's in black and white. That's obviously blood. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Most of that sequence when they are leading up into the house was shot in one take. Up until when they get inside and they cut, they start cutting back and yeah. forth from 16 millimeter to uh, high eight. That's when they had to go back and, and sort of redo it because eventually the first time they tried to do it, they couldn't get when... Mike gets like knocked out mm -hmm. and then Heather finds him. Yeah. That whole lead up is just super creepy, super terrifying. But I think what makes it creepy is that moment where Mike gets knocked down and the camera's mm. just there on yeah. the floor. 
the audio and like how you said that you listen to it, because you know that Heather is behind Mike, you're getting the audio of the camera that's on the ground. Yes. So it's distant and yes. you hear her coming okay. closer and closer. That was a thing that like messed with me when I watched it like this time. And that's why I had to look up the dat is because I was like, why is it this way to where at some point I was like, is somebody else holding Heather's camera? Like, because yeah. So Mike runs downstairs. He first runs upstairs because he thinks that Josh is up there. He thinks he hears him up there. And then Heather follows him and they're both upstairs. Then he's like, no, wait, shit. I think he's downstairs. I'm coming downstairs. And like, he goes downstairs to try and find Josh. He ends up in the basement. Heather's like trailing behind. And then he gets hit, I'm assuming, by whatever. Drops his camera. There were the two directors like hit him and then like made him and like pulled <laughs> him away. His camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the thing that I wondered us. I was like, so the camera's on the ground and then we hear screaming and then we go to Heather's camera. But the scream still sounds so far away that I was like, I don't understand. Like, I didn't get it at first. And I think younger people that watch it probably won't get it either. They'll be like, this is like a flaw. We're seeing Heather's camera, but we're hearing her screams in the distance. Like, how does that make sense? And it makes sense because the dat was on mic. So the screams you're hearing are from Mike's audio, but you're seeing Heather's camera, which is like super genius because the screams get louder and louder and louder as Heather goes to find Mike. And so I thought that was, that totally makes the ending. Obviously the iconic shot of Mike's in the corner and then you see the camera and then something happens to Heather and then it's the same frame over and over again. And then that's it. Heather's camera is so like still when she's trying to find Mike that it's, it's almost like it's not even her because the camera's not shaking. She's not running. She's just like walking around the house, yeah. which makes it even creepier. And I think going back to going from the video footage to the film footage, mm -hmm. when anytime it's video footage, obviously it's super shaky and like, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's a smaller camera. But when you go to the black and white, if you look at the black and white footage, it's a lot smoother. Yeah. It's a lot more detailed. And I think it adds a break to your brain of like shaky footage, smooth footage, yeah. shaky footage, smooth footage. So it's not all shaky like some of the, you know, later films that came out that were completely just shaky completely shaky. And I think that's another sort of brilliant idea to be like, let's cut back and forth and, and make it seem, give the audience a break so it's not making them sick. Yeah, and I think about it and I'm kind of sad that I wasn't older when the movie came out because I feel like seeing this movie in the theater would have been such an experience, like good or bad. It would have been such a cool thing to see, especially that last scene where right before you see Mike, like it's kind of one of those things where it's one of the things I really like about found footage movies, even though it's very divisive how people feel about them. I really like the fact that in a found footage movie, you can't really look away from what's happening because it's happening right in front of your face. Mm -hmm. And it's not like with another horror movie where like you can look off to the right of the screen if something's happening or to, you can look down to the bottom. It's like wherever you look, it's right in your face. And I, I really like that last scene because of that. It kind of feels like you're there or like it, it reminds me of like a, a horror video game in a first person kind right, of view right. where you can't hide from it. You're just kind of like there. You just have to go through it. And that's kind of what I really like about the movie. And as she turns every corner, it gets worse and worse and worse. And you're just like, what is she going to find? 
which I get like, we'll talk about it later. I get why people were disappointed with the ending because, you know, I feel like you're expecting something and then you get something else. Um, but I, I, I really like the way it ended. I think that's the brilliance of this movie, the ambiguity of it, yeah. which again, people have a hard time with ambiguity in movies. They Especially don't have horror movies, I would think. But I think just in general too, like I feel books have an easier route to be ambiguous where because films are such a visual medium, I want you to show me how this is going to end. Like literally, you know, I don't want this yeah. like kind of like vague, like unspecified ending because yeah. it's people are let down by it. Usually it's kind of like, you know, the, the ending to the Sopranos, the ending to 2001. But I think like if you get it, like, there's so many layers to it when yeah, you get it. And it, it strikes your imagination yeah. because now your imagination can go wild and be like, Oh, it could be this. It could be that. And it, yeah. it gives it a rewatchability that if it is just a ABC story, you're not going to rewatch that 20 times. Yeah. And I, we were talking about earlier about how different regions got alternate endings. So I'm going to talk about those really quickly. Um, one of the first ones on the Blu-ray is it's the same ending. It's just a little bit more extended. So you get a little more of a build. Um, I don't think I would have liked it to be that extended. I think the way it was, was fine. The second one is it's this, it's all kind of the same build with Mike being like, I'm going downstairs and like Heather following. It's the same thing with the screams, everything else. The other one was um, the reveal instead of Mike facing the wall, he's facing her. So he's looking right at her, which I was like, yeah, that's creepy. But what is his expression? It's just, stone i like him facing the wall because it calls back to rustin parr and how they mentioned that the third one is she turns the corner and mike's being hung he's hung from the ceiling he's just hanging and then the very last one is she turns the corner and in the basement there's a bunch of stick men and you see mike like as a stick man he's like hung like a stick man in watching the movie, like I said earlier, this was only my second time watching the movie. So it was kind of like my first time because the first time I saw it, I, I don't even remember how old I was, maybe 15. And in watching the movie, I, I, I kind of was like, maybe it's just me being super cautious. But I was kind of like, why would this girl go to the woods with these two men? One who she's never met before one who she used to date and doesn't date anymore. Mm -hmm. And just like she mentions it. No one, I think she says like, no one can find us out here or like no one knows where we are. I'm always like, what, why would she do that? And like, I know she's trying to make her documentary, but that kind of implanted the thing in my brain where I was like, dude, these guys could kill you. Like you're in the forest. You're all alone. No one knows where you are. These guys can kill you. So my theory is that Mike and Josh killed Heather and they used the Blair Witch to get away with it. Ooh. There is a video on YouTube from the film theorists about this. And I actually, I stumbled on it completely by accident. Like I wasn't looking into it or anything. And when I saw it, I was like, this is kind of what I was thinking about. And so in the video, they kind of go through evidence of how this could happen. One of the first ones, like I mentioned, is that Heather doesn't know Mike. She's just kind of like having yeah, him come along just, for the ride and is like, hey, you must be Mike. I've never met you before. And yet they're all going to camp. And also the fact that Mike is just kind of coming to this thing and Josh and Mike aren't being paid. 
They're just kind of there. And then there, there's a little bit about Josh where he's talking about spilling blood on the slate, which is kind of weird, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, I get it, but it's, it's, it's a little weird on the first night, I think where they mention where Josh is like, Hey, I heard cackling like while I was sleeping, he just seems so chill about it. And you're like, I feel like any normal person wouldn't be that be chill about it. Fuck out. So it seems like Mike and Josh kind of used the Blair Witch legend to implant that doubt into Heather's mind that whatever was to happen, she would just kind of think it was the witch. And so you can kind of see that in like all the weird shit that starts to happen with the rocks and like all that stuff that's happening with the sticks. I think in one of the elongated scenes that they had to cut out is I think the first time that Heather goes out and sees the rocks, she accuses Josh. She's like, Josh, did you set up the rocks? Yeah. And I was sleeping and I just didn't hear you. Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring that up. And also she mentions early on that when she sleeps, that she sleeps, I think she says she sleeps like a rock or she sleeps like the dead, which is like giving Mike and Josh even more of a chance to, you know, move shit around while she's sleeping. And then there is the fact that they like almost immediately start to question Heather and like, are you taking us the right way? Even though she has the map, she's been studying the map. And then when you, when you see them walking, it's usually always Heather behind Josh and Mike, kind of like Josh and Mike either know where they're going or they're purposely diverting her from the, wherever they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to go. There's the whole map thing. Which earlier I mentioned when Mike was like, oh, I just kicked it into the creek. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you do that? Because the last time we see the map is when Josh and Heather are fighting about it. And Josh is like, dude, just give me the map. Like, can you give me the map, please? Can you please give me the map? And Heather always mentions that it's in her back pocket. And that's what she's like. Josh is like, I'm not trying to get in your pants and get the map. And so it's like, does the map like magically disappear does the witch like go into the tent and take the map or like, is it more likely that Josh grabs the map, gives it to Mike and then Mike gets rid of it? Yeah. That's never really clarified in, in like, even in while they were shooting it, that Mike kicked it in the stream. Yeah. Like for reals. But it's like, how did that happen? Like, yeah. did she just drop it or like, exactly. Like how did it, it even end up? And yeah, it, it's never really clear. And then the whole, the whole kind of, the whole scene where Josh goes missing. I, I remember that I think the night before this is when they're already like sufficiently freaked out. And Mike says he'll take first watch, which leads me to believe that they're supposed to trade off. Well, I was thinking that too, because Mike's like, I'll take the first watch. And I thought, well, Josh will take second watch. And that's when he, disappears right. or does whatever but they he, kind of like don't really mention it right, right right yeah i think the last part probably is one of the most damning in this theory i'm not saying it's true it's Ooh. probably not true but it's it's a good theory is they go to the house and mike's always like oh my god a house and then way back in the beginning they mentioned rustin parr so it's kind of like i feel like that was Rustin Parr's house. And that's why the little kid's handprints are there. Whether or not he was influenced by the Blair Witch is up to speculation. He could have just been a crazy guy. But maybe Josh and Mike knew about the house and knew where it was. And we're like, we're just going to lure Heather into the house saying it's the Blair Witch house and mm-hmm. just kill her there. Right. Mike's never seen this house before, but he knows that there's a basement and he knows to run up the stairs and he knows to run down the stairs. 
And so I feel like him running up the stairs, him running down the stairs is kind of a diversion for Heather because he runs immediately up the stairs and he's like, I hear Josh, he's upstairs. And she's like, hold on. And then he's like, wait, no, he's downstairs. And then she's like, hold on, I'm coming. And so it gives him enough time to get like knocked out and then be put in the corner so that Heather can find him and then Josh can kill her. And also seeing as Mike is supposed to get knocked down first, wouldn't you think that he would be the first one to get killed and Heather would be in the corner and then she would get killed? Yeah. Why is it that Mike gets knocked out and then he goes into the corner? Exactly. Interesting with all of that, because the interview with Heather Donahue, she talks about how, or the interview her asked her, didn't you think it was weird to make this movie and you're camping out with two strange dudes and like, you have a boyfriend in real life. Like, didn't your boyfriend be like, you shouldn't do this. And she's like, Oh yeah, my boyfriend hated it. She was, (laughs) she was always like, you know, after I was done, like what happened? What, what did you do? Yeah. And then even Heather's mom in real life said, I need background checks on these guys. And like, if they're going to mess with you, let me know. Cause I'm going to fuck them up. And cause she was like the only girl probably. Yeah. 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 And so it's interesting that theory versus like the reality of it. Cause it's, yeah, she's taking a big risk with making this and with all these dudes that she has no idea who they are. The Blair Witch Project premiered as a midnight screening on Saturday, January 23rd, 1999 at the Sundance Film Festival and opened Wednesday July 14th, 1999 at the Angelica Film Center in New York City before expanding 25 cities on that weekend. It expanded nationwide on July 30th, which again, my history with it is like spot on. When I first learned about it, I was in summer school and <laughs> and again, a day before my birthday. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Going back to the question that we asked at the beginning of the podcast, it was all about viral marketing. And we're going to talk about how this was pretty much the first that took advantage of viral marketing because in 1999, more people were starting to get the internet, more people were starting to get access to the internet. And the marketing team of the Blair Witch really used that to their advantage. One of the first things they did, which kind of when I think about it, it harkens back to my experiences at Comic-Con the last few years because they do this a lot at Comic-Con for shows and movies is they hand out, you know, memorabilia from movies or something that don't have to do with the show. What they did at Sundance was they started handing out leaflets, missing persons leaflets for Heather, Mike and Josh. that pretty much said missing, had their names or pictures, their information. And that was pretty much it. And so that was kind of how they got the word around about the movie. But unfortunately, they had to pull the leaflets because a TV executive had been kidnapped like in real life. And to me, I remember going to the website seeing that like missing. I mean, it looked hundred percent real and tons of people thought that they were dead. Yeah. Like even like, I remember once they started doing interviews, Heather talked about like, Oh yeah. Like until I started doing interviews, tons of people thought that I had actually died. She's mentioned that her mom got condolences cards all the time. And I, I haven't heard that from Josh and Mike, though. I just heard that from Heather. Another thing that they used to their advantage, like I was mentioning earlier, was the internet. So they had that Blair Witch website that me and Manny have been talking about this whole entire time that you can go visit it right now. It looks exactly the same as it did in 1999. And you can kind of look at all the stuff they have. So they have photos of Josh's car when they found it. They have cri- crime scene photos of Heather's back. I'm assuming it was Heather's backpack they found with all the film canisters. 
Heather's diary, like pretty much everything they found, they have pictures of it on the website and it looks super real. And, it's, and if, of course, if you lived in 1999, it's, it's exactly what those websites look, looked like at the time. So it's not very extravagant and it's, it's just basic enough to where you could, if you stumbled upon it, didn't know what it was, you would a hundred percent believe it. And again, it's just adding to everything that we've been talking about, the believability of it. And a lot of the ads for the Blair Witch at the time just drove traffic to the website. That's all it said was it had the website. And if you went to the website and you clicked on, I think it's called, it says the myth or the legend or something like that. It has the entire timeline of why that forest is haunted. So it starts with, you know, the first witch and then it goes down to Rustin and then it goes to Josh and Heather and Mike and kind of ends with that. In addition to that, um, the late 90s was kind of prime time for message boards and chat rooms, especially random chat rooms. I don't know. I should have looked this up. I don't know if Reddit was around. I then, don't think it was. But I'm sure something similar was there. And so what the marketing team did is they went into, you know, chat rooms for unsolved mysteries or chat rooms for cold cases or message boards for that. And they kind of planted messages of the missing, you know, documentarians to kind of help it um, gain traction and the fact that it was real and kind of get word of mouth on the documentary. They partnered with Sci-Fi and made a documentary about the documentary, basically. And I had forgotten about that until we started researching this. And I remember that was a big deal, too, because it just added to the mythos of, yeah. did this actually happen? Did mm -hmm. this didn't happen? And I mean, in, in hindsight, like, it looks fake, but... Most of it actually looks okay for the time. There is there's There are two sequences that give it away super hard. One of them is they interview this like pagan guy who's like a master of the occult and it's supposed to take place in the 1970s. It obviously doesn't look like it is. And like, he's just like dressed like he's supposed to be in the 1970s. And then also there's an interview with Rustin Parr, supposedly that's in black and white. And there's a guy that's supposed to be Rustin Parr. And that too looks fake. Like it just looks recent, yeah. you know? But other than that, the rest of it, is pretty believable, I would say, if you were just kind of randomly watching it. One of the most Google things that I saw is the first hit is, is the Blair Witch Project real? <laughs> like even to this day, like you search it. And yeah. It's still the I saw one that even like maybe 10 years ago, people on Reddit were like, okay, I know the movie's not real, but look at all this shit I found on the Blair Witch. And so people, I'm sure people still believe it. After the opening weekend, the marketing team decided to take out a full page ad in Variety and all it said was BlairWitch.com, 21,222,589 hits to date. And that was wow. it. Which is genius. Because you're like, what the fuck is this? I'm going to go look at the website. I remember seeing like BlairWitch.com or, or whatever the address is. And I remember thinking every film at the end of the credits is going to have some web address. Before that, I didn't think about it at all. But I... Once I saw the website and saw like what it was doing, I'm mm -hmm. like, every film is going to have some kind of website that's adding to whatever the film is that, that they're making. And in addition to, you know, the marketing of websites, the message boards, the variety ad, the leaflets, what they did was they hid the cast 
during the yep. film's release, mm -hmm. which kind of lent to people thinking they were actually dead. And that was the fine line that they had to like do because Heather says they were at the premiere. There was an interview that she had with Craig Kilborn on the Late Late Show. That's the second time we've mentioned that. Basically, she says we were at the premiere, but before that, we had to keep it on the download because if they saw us or if they yeah. realized that we were still alive, it kind of would ruin the whole mythos of of the film. And so, yeah, it was like the production team trying to be like, lay low, don't do any interviews. And they even updated their IMDb pages to say that they had died, <laughs> which Are you serious? I didn't think IMDb was around back then. I think it was but maybe. I looked at it now. They're alive now. But I guess at the time they had updated them to say right. they were dead. I don't think you can get away with that now. No way. At no. all. No, you, there's, it's just too easy to figure out people being alive or dead and just like whether this film is real or not. And it's just, yeah. it was a product of its time. What the cast is doing now, I'm sure everyone's probably wondering where they went from now. Heather became a medical marijuana grower. What? She did a few stuff, like a little, like bit parts, yeah, maybe I in TV that. shows, stuff like that. But yeah, she became a medical marijuana grower and released a book called Grow Girl in 2012. Wow. You get it on Amazon. That's amazing. Yeah. And Mike appeared in some same thing, small bits in movies and TVs. He owns the Big Blue Door Theater in Hawthorne, New York, and often goes to horror conventions. Nice. I think Heather does too, actually. I, I think I saw her in like Son of Monster Palooza or something right, recently. Right. And then with Josh, he was kind of the one that succeeded the most, I guess, because mm -hmm. he started in more commercial movies. Mm -hmm. So he was in Madhouse, The Shaggy Dog, Higher Ground, and he was in a Soderbergh movie nice. called Unsane. And he's married to Allison Pill. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Whoa. I saw it today and I was like, what? Yeah. That's amazing. I know. Well, I did not Allison know Allison Pill that. from American Horror Story in the newsroom. Yes. She's great. Yeah. Fantastic. The Blur Witch Project was critically acclaimed. I think even now it has an 88% uh, tomato meter rating. Um, it didn't win many awards, but what it did get was an Independent Spirit Award and it got the John Cassavetes Award uh, for Best Film, which is basically the John Cassavetes Award is given to like the lowest budget, but we're able to do the most with the least amount of money. And so they were able to achieve that. The film grossed an estimated $248 million, making it the fifth highest earning independent film ever made. Also one of the most profitable movies of all time. And if you think about the budget, even today, $248 million is a lot of money. Yeah. And compared to $30,000, that was its legacy for a really long time. It was sort of the El Mariachi of its day, yeah. where it was just made for nothing and just gross, you know, tons and tons of money. The first kind of reviews that came in, not necessarily from critics, but just from crowds was pretty much immediate backlash from the movie because people thought they were going in for a horror movie. And ultimately it is a horror movie, but it's not what horror movies were at the time because you had had what like scream had come before you had stuff like that, that were pretty much in the slasher genre. And I think people just, weren't expecting it to be this because this movie is pretty much all tell and no show. You know, they tell you these things, they prepare you for these things and you never see anything. You never see the witch. Like you never see anything pretty much. 
the only gore you see is that bundle of twigs. And so I think people were just like really disappointed. And that's why a lot of people really hate it right now. They're like, you know what? Nothing happens in the movie. It's fucking boring. Either you dig it or you don't. So I think it's one of the more divisive horror movies that are in the genre. And that's, that's, that's what happened is people were kind of expecting a more conventional horror film. And this wasn't it. And, you know, when we talk about the cast members afterward, I feel like Heather was kind of hit the hardest because, like we said earlier, her mom was receiving condolence cards and people were coming up to her on the street and were like, you know what? I wish you had actually died. I want my money back. (laughs) And so it's just like I saw a thing where she was saying that her biggest regret was using her actual last name because now people can find her and know that it's her. It's definitely a movie of less is more. Like, I think if it would have been gory over the top it yeah. just wouldn't really fit it and i'm gonna reference a film that inspired it and there was actually a lot of conflict with it is a film called the last broadcast which came out a year before um or i think a year or two before uh the blair witch and it's about the jersey devil and it has a very similar format where mm-hmm. this uh gentleman who is creating a documentary based off a tv show called factor fiction and it's basically following this story of the host of that show. Yeah. Him and two other guys go into the woods to find the Jersey devil and the two guys get murdered, but the host survives and they think, Oh, it was the host. Yeah. And the documentarian is trying to figure out, was it really the host? Was it the, the Jersey devil? And so there's this whole back and forth, very similar format. Um, but that film is super gorier and more graphic than, than Blair Witch. It makes those scenes because it is also a low budget film. They couldn't really afford to make those scenes very graphic. Makes it look a little bit cheaper, you know, where the Blair Witch plays with your imagination and, and your imagina- imagination fills those gaps. Yeah. That's why I feel like Blair Witch was a little bit smarter um, a little bit more careful in those moments where they realize, okay, we can't afford to cut someone up or like yeah. cut someone's arm off. And so it's just, we're going to pick and choose our moments and let sort of the not specific moments sort of take people by surprise. There's something to be said about a movie that doesn't show all that stuff and kind of relies on world building and mythos building and kind of lets your mind run wild because I always talk about how what you imagine is always scarier than what actually happens. And just think about how many films this movie inspired. It spawned so many you know, of them. Paranormal Activity, VHS. It created a whole subgenre of, yeah. of found footage horror film that you couldn't go back from. You know, it was just, it set a, a new tone for that. I think the Blair Witch legacy for me is. Even doing the research and rewatching it again, I hadn't watched it in fucking years. It brought up all those terrifying feelings for me. And like, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, like going back to the website where I didn't get scared again, because it's just, it's just weird how your brain sort of goes back to that initial fear. And even watching the film again, it just, it was something that I was completely terrified of. And now that I've watched it and researched it, it's sort of like, yeah, it's like you're like you're getting over your fears, but there's still you your mind just kind of goes back to nineteen ninety nine at least for me. Um, it may be different if we're watching it for the first time and don't have any of that context. But I think it's a real sign of its time in that 
a phenomenon, which the Blair Witch was a complete phenomenon because it was in Time Magazine. It was in Newsweek. It's been parodied so many parodied times. Parodied so many times. Like I said, it created a whole subgenre. You couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere at that time. Um, those kinds of films, to me, it's all about timing. The Blair Witch, if it had come out earlier, it would have been the last broadcast because it didn't really take advantage of the internet like it did. And if it would have come out later, say like 2002, 2003, someone would have beat it to it. would have been debunked. And it would have easily been debunked and people would have found out about it way sooner. And it's also the aesthetic of it. How we talked about it was shot in in high eight and 16 millimeter. Today, if you were to make it, you would have shot it on an iPhone and it would look too clean. It would have looked too professional. You wouldn't buy into that it was found and that it was rough and and even some of the shots in the film were, I think, like, oh, what would like vloggers do today? They yeah. would not look the same. It would yeah. look too perfect. And so it's a complete sign of the times. And the Blair Witch found something in 1999 that was inescapable and has been parodied and has been du- tried to been duplicated, but no one's really sort of found that that same sort of essence. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it is one of the greatest, if not the greatest viral marketing campaign ever, because it was kind of the first one. And like you were saying, it came at the perfect time, like any earlier, any later, and it wouldn't have succeeded the way that it did. And yeah, like we have a difference in age, we're eight years apart and you have a difference in how it affected you. And I have a difference in how it affected me, but I can still see how influential it, it was and how influential it still is because we keep seeing copies of it. Like not necessarily the same story, but the same format. And we haven't seen a good internet viral campaign in a while because I feel like it'd be so hard. Like I can't even think of what I would do to kind of reinvent that method. Because everyone knows everything right and as And everyone it comes debunks out. it five minutes after. There's like no if mystery. you're trying to do a found footage film that's supposed to be real, like I can't even think of the extent you would have to go to to try and make it real. Yeah, you would have to go to some really broad lengths. You'd to have to have so much money to just unwraps. like keep everyone shush about it. And so, yeah, I, I think it, it's one of the greatest campaigns that a movie's done. And now we end the podcast how we always do with a double feature. Again, it can be relatable. It can be completely different. Maybe it has an actor in common with it. Um, but my double feature is maybe my favorite found footage ever. And that movie is Cloverfield and Angie's nodding cause she knew it was coming. But again, it's another film that used viral campaigns to a T came out in 2008. And I remember still me and Angie going crazy over the teaser where it basically had, you know, New York Statue of Liberty being destroyed and and the guy saying oh my god oh my god and then it said produced by jj abrams and then it just gave you the date of the movie when it was going to come out and that was it and that was the website and was that the date. was the website and that was it and no one saw it coming and this is 2008 like we were talking about how even in 2008 it was harder to keep a secret but for you know that time even if you were in the know no one really saw that film coming adding to that we knew that it wasn't real it was obviously a monster movie, but just the way that they did the trailer and the way that the website was constructed. And there were multiple websites that led to another and one. They and they had Easter one. eggs in different shows that led to the website. And it was just like such a genius campaign for a movie that wasn't even trying to market itself as a real movie. And it's still like the mystique was still there. Like 
we were talking about how we felt when researching this movie. When I was researching the Blair Witch, I felt the same way I felt when I was looking at Cloverfield. Yeah, it's stuff. like a literal scavenger hunt. It's amazing. So my movie, it was going to be Cloverfield, but I had one on the back burner in, in case you picked the same one. Mine is Paranormal Activity because we were talking about, again, it's a found footage film. It's marketed as being real. I don't think it had as much of an internet kind of presence as Blair Witch did where there was a website and like police evidence and whatever. But the word of mouth is kind of what really helped it to where people thought it was real. And they kind of used a different method of recording. Whereas in Blair Witch, it was, you know, handheld camera or 60 millimeter height with paranormal activity. It was home cameras, like yeah, cameras you would have like in your house, cameras. home security cameras, which everyone has. And so it kind of brought the fear into your own house. I would say that was kind of like the evolution of the Blair Witch is paranormal activity because you have a new technology you're using. It's still trying to be a found footage film. They still kind of succeeded in it being a found footage film because the actors were all unknown and you didn't really hear about them at first. And so I think that would be an excellent movie pairing. Thank you guys so much for listening. That concludes our hike into the forest of the Blair Witch. If you're trying to find us on our socials, we are at cut movie pod on Twitter and Instagram as well as YouTube. So if you search, movie pod you should be able to find our video episodes on there so you can catch up the last few that we've done thank you guys so much for listening cut that's a wrap <laughs>